Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We create this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. I've just had a really wide-ranging chat with Lucy Brogdon. Lucy is currently the chair of the Mental Health Commission Advisory Board. In this capacity, she speaks with many CEOs and senior leaders about everything relating to workplace mental health. She also discusses the family crisis that led her to pursue a purpose to improve Australia's mental health. Both Lucy's husband, John, and Lucy herself have been very supportive to me in the past. John launched my first book, Back from the Brink, at the Black Dog Institute, and Lucy launched my second book, Back from the Brink 2, T-O-O, a book to help carers of those with depression. Before her current role, Lucy worked for Macquarie Bank, where she directly reported to Alan Moss, the CEO at that time. Now, even though Macquarie has a hard-driving reputation, Lucy explains why she really considered Alan Moss to be a caring CEO, because he always strived for both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. She gave an example, a very simple action that Mr. Moss took when Macquarie acquired a firm, which vastly maximised the chance of success of that acquisition. Lucy really strives for a life of service and a life of purpose. And she reveals two people that have already passed away that she receives huge inspiration for in the way they led their lives. She has some great advice about the building blocks required to build a caring culture in any organisation. And I'm sure you'll learn some important insights from our chat. Enjoy. So it's a real pleasure to have Lucy Brogdon with us today. Welcome, Lucy. Thank you, Graham. Lucy, what does caring in the workplace mean to you? Look, I think caring in the workplace is fundamental to to the workplace. It's it's not an add-on. It has to be part of the DNA. Caring for each other, caring for those above us, those below us, caring for our clients. It's the key to bringing our humanity to work is to care for one another. And so I I can't envisage that you can have a successful workplace if you don't care for one another. And what do you think are the critical building blocks for that care, to build that culture of care? Look, I think building a culture of care is is a fascinating concept. And when we look at issues around corporate culture, we often find that either people are pointing the fingers up or down, you know, management to the board, the board to management, or everyone wants to be a part of it. And I'm of the school of thought that said everyone's part of um, building a culture. And a caring culture is one that is safe for people. Um, and nurturing for people. And and these might sound like um, sort of new age kind of concepts, but we know and the evidence is really strong that the more we can care for one another, support one another, create that safe environment, actually the more productive and the more successful our organisation is likely to be. 
Yeah, great um, insight and things you raised there. Um, for the purpose of our listeners that don't know your background, could you give a brief overview? Because you've got an interesting career, as I like to say, when I was in recruiting, and uh, it's always interesting to see how things evolve and the choices people make. So I think it would help people just to get uh, some idea of how how you evolved. <laughs> Certainly, Graham, and, and I often wonder if being an interesting career or sometimes the left field candidate can work in one's favour and sometimes. Sometimes it can can be a bit of an issue, but um, I'll try and give you the short version. Uh, my career essentially started in banking and finance, uh, but if I step back before one step before that, when I was looking at what I wanted to do, my passion had been to do psychology, but my parents were slightly conservative and said, "No, you know, do something useful." medicine, law or, or commerce, they're real things. Uh, I dutifully went off knowing that I couldn't be a doctor. They were all lawyers. I am born into a law firm. Uh, genetically, perhaps I, I am a lawyer, but I wasn't <laughs> going to do law. Call that the black sheep. Um, so I did commerce and I did a cadetship uh, with Ernst & Young and then moved to Macquarie Bank. And I'm not sorry that I did that work. Um, I learned an awful lot. Um, I had a good time, but I just knew it wasn't going to sustain me for my working life. And um, when I turned 30, my husband actually gave me an ultimatum to say, stop complaining about not doing psychology and go and do it or, or just, you know, put it behind you. And, you know, a great ultimatum to be given because I was working at Macquarie Bank at the time, reporting debt directly to the, the managing director, Alan Moss, and we had a great chat and I said, I've got to follow this passion and he got right behind it and said, we'll make it work. And um, so I worked uh, three days, studied two and managed to then create the organisational development function within Macquarie Bank at the same time. Then, you know, life puts you on strange paths and journeys and I ended up after three children deciding that um, the pace of investment banking was probably not um, amenable to that. And, and, you know, all credit to Macquarie, they were very flexible, but I knew for me it was time to step back and, and focus on family. And it's through that and my husband's um, mental health journey that I ended up in mental health advocacy and then policy. In that role where you reported to Alan Moss, what, what function were you doing there for him? So I had what I describe as the best job in Sydney, possibly Australia. I was the manager special projects. So I was um, secretary to the executive committee and the management committee of Macquarie Bank. I worked on the annual strategy review. Uh, I worked with ratings agencies and the treasury function on, on ratings. And I also did a lot of speech writing and communications with and for Alan. And what did you learn working so closely with him? Because Macquarie is often called the millionaire's factory. You know, it's the hive of um, the, the capitalist world. What did you learn? It sounds like that he was very open-minded. He was very, you know, flexible that allowed you to study and stuff. But what did you learn from him? Look, I think, um, you know, yes, Macquarie is known as the millionaire's factory. But if we are talking about the caring CEO, to me, Alan is the epitome of that. Uh, very caring of his direct reports, but for all the people that were working for him. And we would often be asked to complete 
you know, many surveys from external regulators and, you know, the various marketing type things that newspapers put out. And consistently, Alan would say as the CEO, the majority of his time was spent on people issues. Now, that was the performance management people issues, but it was also the development side of people issues. And he would invest quite a lot of conscious thinking time trying to address issues of performance, issues of poor culture, uh, really thinking about the people within the organisation. And uh, to give you an example of that, we did an acquisition when I was working with Alan of another investment bank. And um, we talked about how we were going to integrate these people because we were basically buying the people. You know, you buy the brand, but you buy the people. And so integrating the people was important. And Alan said, well, I'm going to go over and meet these people, all these people that we're about to bring on. And he walked the floors of their dealing rooms and their offices introducing himself. And it was fascinating the number of people that said, wow, I've worked at X company my whole life and never met the boss. You haven't even acquired us <laughs> and you're standing in my office, you're leaning over my dealing desk. And I think that just shows his innate sense of, the people are, are critical to the success of the organisation. What a great example of demonstrating care. And, you know, at face value, it, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? But uh, many people do forget to do that. And, uh, you know, even, you know, approaching that group before they came on board, you know, what a lesson in culture he gave them before they even joined, which really had to maximise the chance it was going to work, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Liz, you touched on previously a really uh, pivotal moment in your life and um, with your, your husband, John Brogdon. And for listeners that aren't from New South Wales, I'll just give a brief summary. John Brogdon was the opposition leader in the New South Wales Parliament. And there was a really incident. Uh, would you mind just explaining a little bit about that and how that influences what you're doing now? Sure. So... Um about 15 years ago now, John had a, um, to use the euphemism of politics or the shorthand of politics, a very public fall from grace, and he did make some errors that he completely owns of judgment in making some inappropriate comments, and he had to um, step down from his position of leadership. That was sort of the public face of the issues, and it did culminate in him um, attempting to take his life which was an extraordinary situation for us to both find ourselves in. But that was the pointy end. Um, Stepping back from that, I I knew as his his wife that he he had been struggling with issues for a lot longer than that. This just didn't come out of the blue. But, um, you know, he, he did have a suicide attempt. It was all over the Australian media, it made the international media. I had a friend in Chile to, telling it was on theirs. Wow. In the UK, it went everywhere. So um, there was no hiding from the fact that, that he'd had this suicide attempt, but also there was no hiding from the fact that he was had been and continues to live with a mental illness. And what uh, you mentioned that was the pointy end. What about behind the scenes? What did you draw on to help guide you through that um, that episode? I'm not sure, Graham, if it was the universe somehow looking out for us that, that brought us together with my interest in psychology and, and his history <laughs> um, or him pushing me to do psychology. But 
But I had, you know, realised that he wasn't travelling as well as he should be. I, I realised he was distressed. Like many people in that situation, in the caring situation, uh, I would put it to him that perhaps he wasn't coping as well, he was more irritable, he was sleeping more, he wasn't sleeping, he was eating more, he wasn't eating, um, doing all the wrong things in a psychology student of showing him symptoms of issues and saying, this is you, um, mm. to which he would deny it. Then I went into a place of thinking, well, if it's not him, it must be me. I tried all sorts of different things, and I think I shared this story at a, a, launching a book of yours, Graham, <laughs> that I got so desperate that I looked up foods that might contain things like serotonin, which we know contribute to mood, and our diet became a staple of, of bananas for <laughs> and dinner. Uh, he was a little curious, um, but I did my best. It was only years later, actually, at the launch of your book, Graham, that um, Professor Gordon Parker said, lovely attempt, Lucy, but really it would have taken about 20 kilos a day. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I, did. I do t- tell this story, Graham, because whenever I tell this story, someone will come up to me and say, I've done the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it goes to the, the point of loving and caring for someone um, that um, needs some support, but perhaps won't reach out for that support. So when John actually had his suicide attempt and he was in hospital, as distressed as I was by all of that, there was part of me that was hugely relieved Mm. because I knew we were on a recovery journey. Mm. And I think there's a real message of hope for people that the majority of people will go on to make a full recovery and lead a very fulfilling and contributing life if they get the help that they need. That's such a great message. And I just uh, add to our listeners that both John and Lucy were really kind to me. I went through my own mental health crisis. I attempted to take my own life and launched my first book, which is called Back from the Brink. And uh, John launched that with at the Black Dog Institute with me. And then uh, about 18 months later, I did my second book, Back from the Brink 2, which was for carers. And uh, Lucy was kind enough to launch that with me on, in the media and also at the Black Dog Institute. So we've got a, a long history. And, and also <laughs> a further coincidence, we also happen to come from the same area and our parents uh, knew each other from the Manning Valley and the mid-north coast. So it's been a, a, great, uh, a great journey. In your most recent role, Lucy, you've really got a very high profile now. You know, you've won or been, been awarded an AFR Woman of Influence Award. Um, you've got... Um, an AO is it as well? An AO now as well. I am. <laughs> sorry, so, sorry, I get mixed up. Got an AM as well. And in your role as the chair of the Mental Health Commission Advisory Board, I know that you mix with a wide range of CEOs and senior leaders. How are you seeing the conversation change from what it was, say, five years ago? Look, Graham, that's a really good question. And I think um, in the context of mental health and well-being within the workplace, um, we're seeing progress being made all the time. Um, it was sort of five, ten years ago that I would be going in to, to speak at, at corporate events and still get people putting up their hand because they weren't actually aware that they had a legal obligation to provide a workplace that was psychologically safe. I've got to say that's 
a lot less now and most people appreciate that that legal obligation. Um, although from time to time I still get people asking me how they make the business case for it mm. and I'm not sure how you make the business case for a legal obligation, but that's for others to, to solve. Mm. What has intrigued me in the workplace context is that often when we want to start this journey, um, and I have a master's in organisational psychology, we would have a starting point that, that starts around job and work design and, and co-design. Often organisations want to go right out to the pointy end at start at, start at suicide prevention and work back in. And so I think, you know, really there's probably no wrong place to start in a conversation around both psychological safety and mental health and wellbeing in the workplace. Um, we've seen that there's increased skill. We've also seen there's a lot of increased activity and noise and maybe not all of that comes from a place of skill and of evidence and of science. And so one of the things that we're working on at the National Mental Health Commission in collaboration with the Mentally Healthy Workplace Alliance is really how do we skill up all our businesses, from our biggest top-listed companies, our large government departments, to our small, medium-sized enterprises and even sole traders to, to help them understand their obligations and the what and how of achieving and meeting those and, and exceeding them. Yeah, and um, as we discussed previously, there's also another organisation called the Corporate Mental Health Alliances, which is being led by leaders but being influenced by Evidence, which is which is a good place to to start. How do you see that group interacting with the mentally healthy mentally healthy alliance? Mm. So it's it's we've got off to a great start. Um, Steve Worrell at Microsoft has um, really championed and brought together some of our top business leaders to create the Corporate Mental Health Alliance of Australia, and they their tagline is that they are business led. Export, expert advised, and that's a great position. And, and together um, I meet with his alliance and, and members of the corporate alliance meet with ours. We've got this big project, the National Workplace Initiative, that the Commonwealth's funded, and there are many members of the Corporate Mental Health Alliance working on our various working groups around framework design, evaluation, etc. because... To be successful, all these things have to come from a place of co-design, uh, understanding business need, meeting that business need, but you know, being really expert, expert informed in the design of those interventions. And I think it's also really interesting that it's now, you know, you said before that people can't often make a, a business case but uh, or don't know how to, but there are some pretty compelling things. Like I know, for example, Comcare say the average cost of a stress claim is $342,000. <laughs> One claim is $342,000. You know, for the CSIRO saying that rising mental health issues and work stress is a mega risk for the next 20 years, and that was before COVID. So th there are increasingly um, that thing. But I think one of the most stunning bits of research that I became aware of was um, something that Gallup did. They, they run what they call a Q12, which determines the engagement and discretionary effort with employees, only just 12 questions. But the one question or statement that has the biggest influence is this statement, my supervisor or someone at work seems to care about me as a person. Now, they've shown the more people that strongly agree with that, the higher the profit, the higher the productivity, 
and the higher the customer service levels and the longer people stay with the organisation. And, uh, you know, this has been asked in 135 countries 15 million times. It's a pretty compelling argument that there's there's upside, you know, getting this right, you know, from productivity, not just from a, you know, a safety point of view. Look, there's huge upside, Graham, and I think, um, you know, the Productivity Commission last year released their report into the the costs of mental health um, in the Australian economy, which was something that the the National Mental Health Commission really encouraged government to look at. And in the workplace alone, they estimated it to be around $17 billion. And, you know, if you're running a business, that opportunity cost, and it is an opportunity cost, Mm. is significant because we know that mental ill health is, generally speaking, preventable. So there are things we can do to prevent this. So mm. for a workplace to be doing that is um, allowing that to happen when it doesn't need to happen is really in some respects unforgivable. Mm. And I think um, that's the challenge we have with organisations is how best to do that and appreciate that cost. It's, But I think part of the, fr- the difficulty in this, Graham, is that um, often that cost is invisible because it's not a direct element on the bottom line and maybe these are some of the things we need to do. I was actually speaking to the managing partner of a a law firm. He came from an M&A and finance law background, so one would expect him to be reasonably numerate, and we were talking about the costs of absenteeism, of turnover, et cetera, and he said, it's not real money though, is it? Yeah, yeah, I know. And I thought, It's really real money and they're really real people. And um, that was quite a disappointing attitude to to see that, you know, the economic cost is eye-wateringly high. Yeah. The human cost is really high too. It is. And and I've also asked just a number of leaders and also HR directors, what's the cost of your absenteeism? And they don't know or it certainly doesn't come to rapidly to your mind and yet... um, you know, I saw that in the UK they did an assessment of absenteeism and they estimated that 40% of absenteeism was due to mental health issues. So just that alone is quite a quick way to get a measure on what's happening in people's organisation and the tangible cost. Yep. So, uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> 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 and, and, and I guess the other element is that most of the measures are behind the curve, aren't they? They, they happen after the event. And one thing that, um, you know, I would like to see more of is real-time measure of, of moods, of real-time measure of engagements. And I think one of the good things about COVID last year is a number of organisations transitioned to doing pulse checks, you know, more regular pulse checks. And I really hope that continues because it does keep, you know, help you keep the finger on the pulse. Absolutely. I, look, I think pulse checks have a really important place um, and role to play. Where I um, struggle is where I see organisations starting to try and bring in more clinical instruments mm-hmm. and incorporating mm-hmm. those into their pulse checks. And yes. um, a friend of mine and, and great colleague, um, David Burrows, who does some work in this space, says, um, you know, what will the coroner say? You know, if you're doing clinical instruments on your staff, then you are bringing in a whole other level of responsibility and response Mm. to those issues. And so I think this is where 
um, I'm quite passionate in saying mm. please work with experts because pulse checks are great to, mm. to give you some of that, that lead issue of, you know, trends going up and down. Mm. But, you know, it, it's another step again to start bringing clinical instruments into your workplace and um, not being able to back that up. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, when you ask people what matters most, it's it's having a supportive conversation. It's not diagnosing what's going on. It's saying, you know, I'm concerned about you. You know, can we can we find some help for you? That's what matters most. And, you know, as, as Dave and yourself say, that um, it's just ridiculous to try and use clinical tools in the environment. And, and, and I think it also takes away from the validity that this is about not just mental health, but it's about care and, and, and team and organisational performance, and it needs to cover that. Absolutely. And one of the things I, I try and say to people is the greatest gift you can be to a colleague is be what I'd call an emotional mirror. Mm. Um, mm. You know, when my husband John was in hospital um, on one occasion, he said to me, do you know there's this thing called self-awareness? And I said, <laughs> yeah, I do, actually. He said, uh, I don't seem to have any. And um, I said, mm. yeah, uh-huh. That's mm-hmm. perhaps why you're now in this hospital and mm. you're doing the work you're doing. Mm. And I think it's, um, again, it's kind of a funny story to illustrate a really important point. But it is often, um, particularly with mood disorders, which are going to be the issues most of us will encounter in the workplace, that people's self-awareness is one of the first things that might go. Mm. And so while you're standing around the water cooler saying, can you believe so-and-so was wearing the same clothes for three days? Can you believe so-and-so is late all the time? Mm. You know. Hasn't shaved. Yeah, whatever it might be. Mm. um, Mm. He's not performing the same way. You know, was always delivering great work and now it's slipping. Yeah. You know what? Perhaps so-and-so can't see that. Perhaps your colleague can't. And this is the point at which it's really powerful to show that care by saying, you know, whatever frame you like, but I like, I notice, I imagine, I feel. To actually notice, I notice that you've been late. I notice that you're not engaging in the meetings in the same way. I notice that you're a little bit more irritable. Mm. Imagine there might be something going on. Mm. What can we do? Mm. And we, we, I love that, you know, we're not you, what can we do? Yeah. Mm. And, and, you know, I'd like to help. Yeah. What can we do? And so I think be the emotional mirror is mm. the greatest gift because often you can put into words some of the things that they are, are grappling with but can't pull down to, to articulate and, mm. and to start that journey with someone. You don't have to do the whole you know, walk the mile with them, but start the journey for them. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo Poster. And this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress. And this provides easy to follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, 
how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a building a mentally healthy culture checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. I want to uh, just ask you about a couple of other things which I noticed in your bio. You were involved, um, I think, in co-founding both the Sydney Women's Fund and Be Kind Sydney. What what are they and what, what are they about? So uh, both Sydney Women's Fund and Be Kind Sydney are initiatives of the Sydney Community Foundation. Um, a big part of my life is around service and service in the community. Sydney Women's Fund is about funding and and supporting programs to to really help women and girls in in the greater Sydney area, particularly around financial security, um, housing, uh, participation in employment, et cetera. Be Kind Sydney is another initiative of the Sydney Community Foundation, which is really reminding us to be kind to one another. (laughs) (laughs) To support each other, we... um, quickly mobilised a campaign last year when we saw that, you know, people were doing it really tough and, you know, the, the government came in with some great initiatives around job seeker, job keeper, but there are an awful lot of people living in our community that sit off the grid and really need our support and particularly mm. last year. And so we, we try and find initiatives around food, housing, employment to support some of those people. And uh, in a previous conversation, you mentioned that you had uh, called your daughter's middle name Marbank. And uh, could you just explain why that name and why it's so important to you? Sure. Um, so it's actually Maybank. Oh, um, sorry. That's all right. <laughs> the, um, and Maybank Anderson was an incredible um, woman in New South Wales and Australian history. And she... Um, Really, um, she was part of the women's suffrage movement. She started the KU kindergarten movement. She started the first women's newspaper, A Woman's Voice. Uh, She was very much about the advancement of women, access to education, access to employment. And so the more I read about Maybank, I said to my husband, and she was a resident of Pittwater, where we live up on the northern beaches, um, I said to my husband, if we're ever blessed with a daughter, I want to give her her Maybank as a name. And so our daughter's middle name is Maybank, and um, she lives up to the the feistiness and strength of Maybank. (laughs) (laughs) Be careful what you wish for. That's right. You have a very busy role, and and your husband John, who's the CEO of Landcom now in, in New South Wales. What do you do for your self care? Look, one of the greatest lessons I learned through all the issue of, of being um, a carer for my husband is that you can't be a good carer, whether that's a, a capital C carer or a small C carer, without practicing the golden rule of care and that self care. You know, put the oxygen mask on first. And for me, um, that took that was a lesson that took a while to really learn and appreciate and value. But uh, the place that I really get my sense of self-care is through our local surf club at Bilgola. I'm a patrolling member. When our kids were younger, I was an age manager. I've rode in the surf boats. 
but it's a place I can go and know I feel safe, know I'll have a laugh, I can do my exercise and, and really just replenish when I need to. And do you go every weekend or how often are you involved? So during the um, patrol season, which mm. roughly goes from the um, October long weekend to Anzac Day, so we've just finished, um, we're rostered on about every half a day, every five weeks or so. Mm. But they have a fantastic gym with, I think, one of the best views in Sydney. So I was down there this morning. I'm probably there a couple of times a week in the gym. Um, we often go for a walk down there on a Sunday evening, John and I, just to calm off the weekend and restock for the coming week. <laughs> so it's important for both of us. Yeah, wonderful. As you're aware, I was involved um you know, in the beginning of Are You OK? and has seen that grow and reach an impact quite amazingly, actually. And I just was uh, interested to hear your perspective about, you know, what, why do you think it's cut through? Why do you think, um, you know, people do really get behind it? Look, I think uh, Are You OK? is an absolute phenomenon. And um, it's not just a phenomenon here in Australia. It's taking on a global presence. And, and I think the key to it is the simplicity it's a bit like being that emotional mirror for people. Mm -hmm. um, we often have a, a sense that you can't ask someone. You want to ask, but you can't ask. And that simple permissioning of saying, not only can you ask, but please ask someone if mm -hmm. they're okay, it is really powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think um, what we know from the, the evidence and the science is and actually people will generally, if you ask them, will generally answer honestly. Mm. Um, mm. It might be fine, fine initially, but if you are truly asking them from a place of care, putting some framework around, I'm asking, are you okay because mm. I've noticed or whatever, and, you know, are you okay publishes some great conversation starters on their website, people will generally be relieved and answer you very honestly. Yeah, I think you're exactly right there. And that was part of, you know, our founder Gavin Larkin's legacy was just, the, I think the tagline, a conversation could change your life, includes everyone. It's not, um, you know, just about mental health or, or suicide prevention. It, it's an all-encompassing thing. And I think that was part of the, um, the brilliance, which remains to this day. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. One of the uh, important elements of asking are you okay is encourage people to take action. And we might say, you know, call your employee assistance program, call your GP, call a psychologist. And because of the work I've been involved with my personal experience, I'm often asked, you know, do you know a psychiatrist in Brisbane? Do you know a psychologist in Adelaide? Uh, can you recommend someone in the Western suburbs of Sydney? And this sort of highlights um, a real problem in that there's, there's a real difficulty, and I think um, COVID has probably um, exaggerated this, is it can be very difficult to get a quick um, appointment with a psychiatrist, for example. You, you call a psychiatrist and they say the books are closed to new patients or it's, it's going to take, you know, three months before you can see them. And when you're in that distress, as I can speak about from first-hand experience, like that just seems like a lifetime. <laughs> yes. It really does. So yep. what do you think can be done about that? You know, we can't suddenly have a whole lot more psychiatrists or a whole lot more psychologists. What can be done to shorten that time, do you believe? 
<laughs> That's a very big question, Graham. It is, it um, is. So, look, I'll, I'll give perhaps some practical advice to people and then the bigger mental health reform kind of answer and try and keep it short. Um, look, I, I get those questions from people too and, and often um, I say to them, um, your GP is generally your best starting point. Mm. And I think if there's one lesson around general health and wellbeing, I would say to young people, is try and find a GP and create a relationship with mm. them when you're well, mm. when you're relatively young. You know, if you haven't got the family GP, go and try and find someone that you click with in that relationship and start there because you never know when you might need to have a longer conversation about some of these issues. They'll know you and be able to recommend a good fit because when people say to me oh i need a psychologist or a psychiatrist like lawyers or accountants mm. or any other professional there's horses for courses mm. and so it's important i think if you can start that journey through a gp maybe with some recommendations from friends and colleagues but to get that clinical fit right as well as the the rapport can, it is very important so try and start there the waiting list issue is really significant and if I put my commissioner hat on, there's a lot of things we're looking at there. But equally, we know um, the the really beneficial and effective treatment uh, support that can come through digital or e-mental health interventions. Mm. And if you are struggling or between appointments, you know, Australia has an incredible service in the mind spot um, service that's free and available and it's an online support um, with people at the other end. And so, you know, if you're stuck, MindSpot can be a great starting point and a great place to hold you between appointments or until you can get started on that journey. Uh, Black Dog Institute is in Australia is one of the world leaders in developing a number of great apps. You know, they are the found, created Mood Gym, which... Mm you know, is almost at 20 years old, I think, but yeah. still going strong, just mm. as effective. So, mm. you know, often those tools um, can be very effective. They can be very effective between appointments or waiting to that first appointment. Mm. From a, a macro policy level, we have some real issues in Australia in looking at in our workforce and we've got to grow that workforce um, mm. Mm. And we need to grow not just the psychiatrists, the psychologists, but mm. the allied health and our peer workforce. You know, mm. peers can be, uh, peer workers can be very important in supporting someone on a journey. Our mental health nurses are another important backbone of the system and can be a great resource in community mental health, um, in keeping people safe, and in starting and supporting a recovery journey. So we've got to grow the, the workforce We've got to look at the structure of the workforce um, and, and if this is getting too tedious for people, yeah. mm. uh, I'm happy to wind back. But mm. one of the things we're looking at and working with the clinicians on particularly is how do we push them up to work at the top of their scope? Mm. Mm. Um, you know, work at where they're, they're particularly trained for mm. and build elements of the workforce for people at the more mild to moderate space that perhaps don't need the intensive clinical support that someone with more significant psychosocial disability will yeah. need. So yeah. that's all framing our thinking and policy direction at the moment. Yeah, well, I guess one of the good developments as well through COVID was being able to have video consultations 
and and get medi you know Medicare um, rebates for that. That's made a big difference, particularly for people in in country areas. You know, it uh, just means there's a wider po- possibility without having to drive for ten hours to get to a an appointment. Absolutely, and, and telehealth's been extended through to the end of this year at this mm. stage, so um, it, it is proving to be very successful mm. in the. the um, intense time of COVID last year, most it was about 70-30 on telehealth platform. It's now come back round to about 70% face-to-face, 30% telehealth. But you're right, for people in our rural, regional and remote communities, um, it's been an absolute blessing. Yeah. It's been a real pleasure catching up, uh, Lucy. Just got a Three more questions I'd just like to ask you before before we go. And um, that uh, the first one is, who would you like to have to dinner who has already passed away, that you could have a chat with them and, yep. and uh, tap into their wisdom? So I think, um, as we've already discussed, Maybank Anderson would be uh, at my dinner. But if I could add one more, um, it would be William Wilberforce, and and if listeners are not fam- familiar with William Wilberforce, he was a member in the British Parliament, and for about twenty years he led the charge and persisted in getting the abolition of slavery act through the British Parliament. It took twenty years, and the reason I admire him is that I have learnt. Um, frustratingly, uh, disappointingly, but somewhat practically that big reform, uh, big social change can't happen overnight, but mm. you need to have patience and persistence and and good grace to, to really bring communities along with that change. And I think for me to be able to ask William Wilberforce how he, how he stuck the course would be <laughs> um, a great opportunity. It's <laughs> uh, a great uh Example, and I think wasn't the song "Amazing Grace" about you know it was about that that long track to um, you know getting freedom. Um, That's right. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. What uh, what important lesson did you learn growing up in the country? Uh, <laughs> look, I think um, it's interesting growing up in the country, but growing up in two families where service was really important part of the family's identity and role in their communities. Both my um, grandfathers were were mayors in their respective communities. In their day, um, their wives were both active lady mayoresses. Uh, My parents are very active in their community and served on local government and and in a range of NGOs and not-for-profits. And I think the big lesson that I learned, and you see particularly out of um, country towns, is active participation in your community and service within it as um, really something that's got a huge protective factor mm. and a huge opportunity to to really just in, get the most out of life. <laughs> yeah. It, um, you know, I often reflect on growing up in the country as well and um, it, it is different. It is different. And, you know, I think, I think the big thing is that um, everyone knows everyone. <laughs> and so there's not many secrets. <laughs> yes. For better or worse. <laughs> yeah, for better, for better or worse. Uh, and the final question, uh, Lucy, um, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your uh, 20-year-old self? 
Look, if I was to, to speak to my 20-year-old self, I'd just say strap in and enjoy the ride. It's going to be wild, but, you know, you're in for some amazing opportunities and, and you'll learn so much and meet amazing people. There'll be the ups and downs of the roller coaster, but the buzz is absolutely worth it. <laughs> Yeah, and, and as we've discussed before, I, I think we can often underestimate how the hardships can lead to meaning. And, uh, you know, I think that would be very much the case in the work that you do and what I do as well. Mm. Yeah, I think um, John, my John out of politics always likes to quote Richard Nixon in that context. And he says that it's only when you've stood in the deepest valley do you appreciate how beautiful it is to stand on the highest mountain. And, um, I try not to say that with too much smugness, but I do think when you've been through some tough times, you get a personal insight that you is quite special. There is a silver lining in most dark clouds. It's been just uh, a wonderful chance to uh, catch up, Lucy. You've um, you know touched so much on you know on the self care, how you'd like to see the culture of care change in organisations. Your passion also for women advocacy and and uh, greater involvement in leadership um, and I think we need to do it again when uh, you know when there's something I know that there's some interesting developments that you're working on at the moment that could be relevant um, you know in a few in a year's time or something like that so it might be good to catch up then be fantastic thanks Graham my pleasure thanks for joining us today I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team if you enjoyed this interview today, Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you are interested in seeing details about our scalable WeCare mental health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Please subscribe by clicking the button below. We really would love to have you as part of the care movement. Thanks for joining us.